Greetings. Greetings to all of you, good people. Tuning in live here for the School of Mythopoetics uh, lead up events to our great grand opening June 1st. I am Ian McKenzie, one of the stewards of the School of Mythopoetics. And I am beyond delighted to be welcoming on our guest today for a very special session uh, titled The Fall and the Underworld. Uh, now, this special guest, I've been uh, privileged to cause paths a few times uh, from a wild wedding in Ontario to a retreat center on the West Coast a number of years ago, of which I'm supremely disappointed I didn't uh, sign up for the full five-day offering he had at the time, Martin Shaw uh, was giving. And yet, um, since then, yeah, we've, we've uh, had a podcast on the Mythic Masculine. We've shared a pint in a thousand-year-old pub in Devon. I believe it was Devin. And um, it's always it's such a treat to to have time with Martin here. And uh, many of you tuning in, of course, perhaps have already heard and are very excited from the comments I can see on the side. Um, and uh, I'm just going to spill a few more words before I, I bring Martin on because of uh, such an esteemed uh, roster of achievements that uh, Martin has. Martin Shaw is a teacher who lives on Dartmoor in the far west of Britain. He has written many books, including the Myth Teller Trilogy, The Night Wages, Courting the Wild Twin, and Smoke Hole. His award-winning first book, A Branch from the Lightning Tree, is widely regarded as the first book to weave mythology directly to wilderness rites of passage. An oral storyteller, Dr. Shaw created the oral tradition and mythic life courses at Stanford University. He's the director at the West Country School of Myth and a longtime wilderness rites of passage guide. Shaw led the Great Mother Conference, which is America's oldest mythopoetic conference for a decade. Widely published, the Irish Times described him as a, a senjai, if I'm saying it right, an interloper from the medieval. Reader in poetics at Dartington Art School, he contributes regular essays and audio at his Substack subscription, The House of Beasts and Vines, uh, which I highly recommend that you subscribe to, become a, a member. And Robert Bly called him a true master, one of the very greatest storytellers we have. And so I am uh, delighted to bring Martin on. Welcome, Martin. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for being here. I understand that you uh, have been mostly out of the uh, public eye for, for some time. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about that. I have, yeah. Uh, I have an MA over here, a master's program called Poetics of Imagination. And that takes up a certain amount of attention. But I think also, I think one of the interesting things that came up for a lot of us during lockdown was how we want to curate our time. What stories do we want to leave moribund behind us? And what are the ones we really want to breathe on the embers of? So I think I've been quieter because I'm still trying to take the invitation seriously that we're all going through, which is for a deeper life. Uh, and even if you're as busy as I am, uh, that doesn't stop. Those kind of yearnings don't stop. So uh, that's been really part of it is is tending to my own garden, really. Mm. Uh, you know, in your recent essay, uh, again, which I highly recommend, Navigating the Mysteries in Emergence magazine, I believe it was that one, um, that you said that not telling the tales as readily or, or sort of having them as uh, as familiar has somehow it's like the, you, they I think you said they got hurt feelings or yeah. <laughs> something along those lines that yeah the the willingness to kind of uh, return again 
in an unfamiliar way. Can you imagine, you know, you're 20 years into telling some of these stories and to some degree you've corralled them. You've corralled them. Uh, when you tell them they take a certain shape, they achieve themselves in a manner that you're used to, they're used to having your weight on them. And then you have this break. And as many people have heard me say many times, so I won't overlabor it, these stories are living beings. And so when you don't tell them after a lifetime of telling them, because I didn't, because I was alone really at the cottage, uh, when I tried to tell them again, they'd vacated the premises. They'd gone off to find some other storyteller or they'd gone to the back of the cave. And so there was a whole kind of courting ritual required. And in the absolute center of that courting ritual was a process where I had to reimagine right from the beginning these stories. Mm -hmm. uh, so although the A to B to C of a story is the same each time, all sorts of little implications are different. Um, and it, yes, it's it's been interesting. Some stories have not returned. Some stories have not come back. Uh, whereas other ones, much newer stories, are, are keen to be told because they're aware we're living. We're living in a different moment now. Uh, and so I encourage everybody, really, as I think I've said already, is whatever you don't need anymore, put it away, uh, and head out on a quest like those old, old Arthurian stories uh, and see what you find. On our uh, previous uh, um, session with a contemporary and friend, Jan Blake, uh, mm. you know, we, we kind of began our discussion by actually touching on this word mythopoetics of which that she mm. had, uh, you know, some familiarity, but the way she said it was, uh, you know, gracefully uh, that it reminded her of, uh, I think, you know, pleasant men, <laughs> telling stories or something and yet also there's curiosity for her of course of, of, of having that aperture widen and i understand of course that you have some deep uh, uh roots and understanding of what what mythopoetic is or its lineage and yeah i'd love to share or to hear a bit of that uh here yes well i mean first of all of course the word mythopoetic uh it doesn't intrinsically have much to do with being a man uh, you know, the, the mythopoetic movement such that it is in this, in this country or this world wouldn't function without women. Women buy books. Men generally don't. Hmm. You know, that's, that's just a straight-up fact. Uh, it's women that turn up again and again and again. So uh, the mythopoetic American um, exfoliation, of course, includes people... Uh, that we all know of, like Clarissa Pinkola Estes, the great Marion Woodman, a wonderful writer called Nor Hall from uh, Minneapolis who wrote uh, an essential book called The Moon and the Virgin back in the 80s. Uh, and, of course, from Nine Neck of the Woods, Sharon Blackie. And there's also a lot of younger writers coming through, a lot of younger women and guys as well. Uh, so wherever you are on the spectrum of gender, uh, the mythopoetic is for you. I mean, my association with it is actually really as a European tradition uh, that arrives in America through, you know, through Whitman and Thoreau. And what I like about the word mythopoetic, and you should never lose, is it's rather hard to pin down. Hmm. Allow it to be hard to pin down. Make sure people don't pressurize you into getting it into a strap line. Work against that. Allow it to be its old, grouchy, mysterious self. For me, mythopoetic 
is very much a word that comes out of the Romantic movement. And what lies behind the Romantics, of course, is Mediterranean mythology, European folk tales. You've got Goethe, you've got Blake. Um, there's a lot of energy in it. Romanticism implies a niceness that the word, the the phenomena of romanticism uh, is much more feisty. So I think you could probably say there are mythopoetics, plural, rather than one mm. right, mono mono story. But for me, it, it includes everyone I've just mentioned and also, uh, you know, quintessentially Robert Graves, the White Goddess, Ted Hughes. You need gatekeepers in a culture. You need gatekeepers, whatever the culture is, whether it's, um, you know, Borneo or Birmingham. Um, and <laughs> the mythopoetic is really what I would describe partially. It's to do with the landscape of a myth and the myth of a landscape. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Martin. You know, in your recent piece uh, for uh, Emergence magazine, as I mentioned prior, you know, you, you open it by saying uh, the correct response to uncertainty is myth-making. Mm. And uh, and I love that phrase. And I would love for you to speak a little to it and, and also understanding. I know you said you wrote it a little while ago and you came back to you and it may even sound different to you now, now that it's published and, and staring at I'm sure all writers go through this. You write something and then often there's a delay of, you know, say six months before it comes out. So I must admit, it was lovely when uh, Emmanuel at Emergence sent it over and you briefly have the experience of receiving it as if someone else did it. Uh, I mean, there's a recording, so I can tell it's me. But um, I like it. I liked that notion of making the move from living with uncertainty to navigating the mysteries. No myth begins with the day that was just like the day before. It always begins with peril. It begins with um, it begins with everything you know getting rattled or shaken, and you have no choice but to break from your apathy and set out to find some kind of medicine, some kind of knowledge, some kind of wisdom that, in the end, hopefully, is going to re revive the culture that you love and care for. But it's a three-stage process. And something I've been thinking about recently is that there's a kind of cultural amnesia about the three steps. And I wonder sometimes if we've become a two-step culture. And what I mean by that is in a myth, when you go down into the underworld, there's the potential for trance states, a kind of inability to find your own center. It's a place of great testing. You have to go there. But in the end, you're trying to get out the other side with a gift. It's not the final destination. But I sometimes wonder if the underworld, we've almost made it so chronic. We've almost made it so comfortable. We're so anesthetized by it uh, that we don't know we're in it anymore. Uh, and that's why I've been the theme of this evening, the fall in the underworld. I've been looking back um, some of the people watching, you may know that I went out for a 101-day vigil uh, about two years ago, and my life has really changed as a consequence of it. 
And one of the things I was left with at the end of this vigil was these nine words, strange words, um, as prophetic words often are, inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. Inhabit the time and genesis of your original home. So I went back and I thought about, well, what was my original home? What was all of our original homes? And I went back to the dreaming stories. I went back to the stories of the world before, as my friend Paul Kingsnorth, he has a great phrase, actually. He said, he says, God made the earth, we made the world. Hmm. Take that in. And the problems that we have are really with the world. It's not the earth. Um, and I wanted to get back in touch with the earth. I suppose I did when I was a young man, but I worry that there are elements of the world we've made that have become an underworld. And one of the ways you know you're in the underworld, I have to say, is when you are, you don't ride your passions, your passions rise, ride you. When you're caught up in any number of sort of uh, addictive, uh, addictive habits and quick, quick releases. Because in mythology, uh, desire takes you a certain way. But the really deep thing, the transformational energy is not desire, but longing. And longing is different because often it's going, you long for something that in this world you may never receive. Uh, and in Welsh, that's called hiraeth, hard to translate. And in um, Greek mythology, it's a word called nostos. Odysseus, when Odysseus is longing to get home, he has a nostos for rocky little Ithaca. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes if instant gratification in, interferes with our innate and natural nostos, our innate and natural hiraeth, our innate and natural, dare I say it, spirituality, our soulfulness. And actually, to go back, funnily enough, to your original, original thought, that's really what I think the myth of poetic is, you know. There was a wild, wild old uh, Irish theologian that very few people know anymore called John Scotus Eriagina, and he said, God is our memory. God is our memory. I could unpack that for you, but if I did, it wouldn't sound <laughs> weird. As I want to leave it weird. God is our memory. <laughs> So my thought would be, if God is our memory, that when, when we are filled with nostos or hiraeth, we're remembering our original dreaming. We're remembering our original dreaming. And the mistake to make is to presume that our move into the underworld or the fall is wrong or shouldn't have happened. I can't say that because I'm a storyteller. No underworld, no story. No crisis, no story. So I'm not here to say we've completely lost our way and the underworld should never have occurred. I'm just trying to remind us that there's something called the return. Uh, and I think that that's something for us to contemplate. What gives me energy? What do I long for? Um, mm. As Ma Antonio Machado, the poet, says, are there bees making honey in my chest? You know where 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 do I find the honey, and how do I be a good how do I be a good bee? Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Martin. Uh, 
you know, there you spoke of Eden actually in this piece, I believe, you yeah. know, at, at somewhat at length too, and, and in ways that I hadn't really heard before. Um, and you finished in, particularly with Eden by saying, to never leave Eden is to stay surrounded by spirit, but remain uninitiated in soul. And I wonder, as you say, you speak of the fall. Uh, I wonder if you could speak of Eden and, uh, you know, how how you approach that understanding as also the the genesis of your original home. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I grew up um, I grew up as a child thinking very much of Eden as a as a kind of uh, a place I was trying to believe in as part of my fledgling religious experience as a little boy. Mm. No one ever put their hand on my chest and said, Eden is also consciousness. Mm. Eden is also consciousness. And you meet people sometimes, and they may or may not be Christians. Christianity is a word I don't think is the thing. But you recognize they are communicating to you from Eden. There's a warmth to them. There's a generosity to them. There's a lack of hubris to them. Um, something that always stays with me is something that Mother Teresa said. She said, be careful if you don't give money to strangers, you know, when, you know, people that beg, because she said they could be a Jesus on the road. Mm. You could be walking past Jesus. Now, I put this, I put this to the test in London the other week. And I gave away hundreds of pounds. By the oh. <laughs> by, the time I got by the time I got to the theatre to see a play called Jerusalem, I hadn't got enough for a pint because it had all gone because I'd met so many Jesuses on the road. But you know what? I felt really good. Mm. I felt really good because you've done an aikido move with the things of this world. And I just decided I was going to believe everybody. You know, people come up with these sort of mad stories, and I, I said, I completely believe you. Is, and they're asking for a pound and I give them 20, you know. Wow. Um, that's, a good, that's a good thing to practice if you can. I said this at the beginning of lockdown. If you're worried about money, spend some. Hmm. If you're worried about money, spend some. You know, I'm not a rich person, but I know that once it gets its claws into me, uh, I'm living in the, the sort of the illusionary state of scarcity. And Eden is not scarcity. So Eden is a consciousness. Eden is a place. And in the old story, the temptation to leave Eden comes from the idea that Adam and Eve could become what, what, what is traditionally called Elohim, little gods, little gods. And they set out from this devotional, um, beautific relationship to their creator out into the world that we gradually recognize is the one that we live in now. Now, what makes me unpopular, of course, with Christians is that I think of this as probably essential. You know, it just absolutely has to, it has to happen because that's the human experiment. That's the human experiment. But as I keep saying, it's not the end of the journey. In fact, although there's an angel with a flaming sword waiting at Eden to keep you out, my little theory is if you can turn up towards the end of your life with a story so compelling, even an angel puts their sword down, that's probably a life worth living. Mm. So I have a lot more that I could say about that, but that was what came out of my time in the forest. It was absolutely not what I expected. It's not a direction that I had looked in since I was a child. 
but I found that it's full of uh, full of vitality. Mm. You speak of the underworld uh, more in this piece as well, and maybe we could spend yeah, a bit of time there. And and also, I think recognizing, you know, I'm just with this uh, sense of of what what it is to turn to, especially in a period like the past couple of years, uh, to, with that kind of recognition that that it is this descent. Uh, it, you know, it, rather than a when are we getting back to normal, you know, kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, impulse, of course, which the culture at large seems completely bent on continuing to do. But you wrote in the essay, uh, the underworld is a place where you broke bread with Baba Yaga, made peace yeah. with limit. That's a yeah. big one, made peace with yeah. limit. Uh, we're fed small scraps of meat by crows when you needed it most. It's the deep, deep, deep dip in a myth, the katabasis, the descent, the mischievous, startling bewilderment of irrational energies. Logic has little traction at such a moment. Sometimes we make these journeys alone and sometimes as a culture. Mm. I, I think that that sh surely by living, uh, anybody watching this or listening to this has some sense of what I'm talking about. There will be people that are listening to this right now that are dealing with a terrifying diagnosis from a doctor uh, or a breakup, someone they love has betrayed them. They've lost connection to their children. Uh, one way or another, you know, the ship is going down and we all understand that. And partially myths are there for those moments because you've got to feel that there's something with you that can explain the texture of the descent. Uh, James Hillman was always, he said, the trouble with the trouble with, with certain forms of Christianity is the mandate is it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. In other words, in, in other words, we're going down, but we're going to zip our way back up again. And the genius, of course, in the in the mythic tradition is we have stories that illustrate the kind of information that is available for us when we break bread with suffering. And make no mistake about it, the underworld, if you've really been there, you are in no hurry to go back. None. Uh, someone that we've lost recently, and I grieve, is the, was the great Maladoma Samay. A Maladoma who I didn't know, other people would have known him better than I did, but we talked side by side for maybe three years, maybe longer, and we had a lot of informal conversations. And his description, really, of the underworld, and I'd say again, a bit like Mythopoetics, there are underworlds, plural, he would say one of the ways you know you're in the underworld is you have no idea how you're ever going to get out. Mm -hmm. uh, and the phrase he used was the world turned upside down. So you take it seriously. You don't go looking for scars. But the reason why initiations around the world usually have some, in indigenous and Aboriginal cultures, there's usually a moment in the ritual where you wrestle death. And the reason you wrestle death is because everybody knows, and this is a sort of a, a senior group of older people, they know the inevitability of that coming at you arbitrarily, like a drive-by beating, whether you, whether you like it or not. So they give you um, 
a kind of a, a, mythologi a mythological underpinning to help you with the sacred braille of that experience. Mm. They help you reach around in the dark, you know, like braille for a blind person and interpret quite what is happening to you. And as I have said, and others I'm sure will have said something similar, the problem we have now is we live in initiatory times, but we lack initiatory language. And what I thoroughly encourage every single person listening to this is to take half an hour of your day, five days a week, and go back to some anthology of old stories and learn them, and most importantly, read or tell them out loud. Your brain, the, the old owl in you, the old woman in you, the old man in you, it needs to hear your jaw chewing on the words, and you will feel different. And that is the beginning of something that I wrote about in a book called Smoke Hole, where I said, look, there's a prayer mat underneath you. Could you just for five minutes stop gobbling ayahuasca? Just for five fucking minutes, could you pull yourself together and trade, as you've heard me say many times, growth for depth? Mm. A little bit. Of, why don't you look at the look at the the dreadful possibility that you were meant to be born in, um, you know, Duluth, uh, and there's something going on in your own family, undramatic and unglamorous as it may seem, that only you can unpick make peace with and deepen and in the end something can flower from it but you know i i, I don't mean to attack people arbitra arbitrarily but I, i'm sure you get the gist of what i'm mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. you said uh yeah trade growth for depth and it reminds me of uh, something else i've heard you say which is i think would you trade comfort for shelter yeah something like, yeah and that, that strikes me as well what you're speaking of is is myth or or even what people i think are are yearning for is a, is a kind of shelter from the times uh uh but but unbeknownst to how, what that actually could mean like mythological shelter is kind of what is coming to me and i wonder how you might apply that sense of as well that myth is a, some kind of shelter at times which are increasingly disorienting yeah i mean i'm I'm coming at it because it's something that I'm really engaged in at this moment. I'm thinking of the, think of the, the Christ, you know, the Christian, think about Yeshua, you know, the real name of Jesus. And he's always saying to his, his disciples, he says, put down your nets, put down your nets. Now, what does that mean? What it means is put down your comfort, put down your way of life, put down your living, put down your certainty and come with me and and to actually to be a fisherman funnily enough that wasn't a bad job it, mm. it, you know to have your own boat that was an achievement people forget that the disciples around yeshua do you know how old they were about 19. they were kids wow. they were kids it's why he spends all his time telling them off <laughs> <laughs> peter's older Jesus is considerably older, you know, he's in his 30s. But he's imagine just wandering around with this group of kids performing miracles. So he complains. Yeshua says, you know, uh, you know, foxes, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. Nowhere. He's, you know, uh, and and for me, that's part of I, I lived in a tent for four years. Uh, I left a lot of what was familiar. 
mercifully without internet or phones or anything like that because I wanted that shelter. I wanted to live within a circle. I'd always lived within rectangles and brick buildings and I'd been protected and there were radiators everywhere. And I wanted to be open to the wild forces because my heart compelled me to do it. It's what all the bards did, all the old Druidic trainings in this place we call Albion. Hmm. You know, you speak of this idea that uh, humans have long been forged on the anvil of mysteries, which again, is such a, a beautiful phrase from that essay. Why are we here? Why do we die? What is love? Yes. Uh, yeah, we are tuned like a cello to, to vibrate with the questions. Uh, what is entirely <laughs> new is the amount of information we are yeah. receiving from all over yeah. the planet. Yeah. Right. So we don't just receive stress at, on a localized human level. We mainline it from a huge abstract conceptual perspective. Uh, perpetual availability to both creates a nervous wreck. Mm. I mean, that's the, the uh, I, I can testify, <laughs> certainly, and many probably can here as well. But um, I speak to that, or I'm wondering, again, the consequence of maybe how does that, uh, you know, blur or make opaque our, our capacity to recognize, yeah, what are the stories that that could speak to us about this moment and this navigation? Something I mentioned about the underworld earlier, is the thought that you know you're in it when you can't find your center. Hmm. And if you are living a world where you are perpetually receiving, you know, think, think about it until very, very recently, until a fraction of a second ago, most of us were concerned in our lives with about 30 people. Hmm. And that was kind of it. Now that might be murderously difficult on occasion and it has my sympathies. I, I like a lot of, my wider community but what happens to me uh, and i think to others is we find ourselves simply fried spun out and addicted to scrolling you know addicted to scroll. do you know something this is awful i found myself this is this isn't a book i particularly chose to uh it's just on my desk mm. uh, i was reading the other day and i did this with the book <laughs> that tells you something you know mm. so in other words the 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 reality is beginning to blur and whilst i'm not interested in dooming and damning technology incessantly uh that the wonderment of that kind of magic that we've developed in the west is having a heinous consequence in all sorts of other ways. There are friends of mine that are trying to write books at the moment and they have to lock their they just have to lock their phones away in a car or make sure that it's a they're a mile away from any technology. Mm. You know, and I, I recommend it, do it. It it'll break your concentration. It's it's terrible. So again, coming back to this notion, the underworld is now much more comfortable because it sedates us rather than challenges us. We don't meet Baba Yaga down there. We meet an avatar of Baba Yaga, but her teeth have been removed. Mm -hmm. You know, we no longer go through the complexity of real engagements and relationships because um, pornography is so available and so mesmeric uh, that it puts us into a kind of trance. My old friend the late and great storyteller Danny Deardorff, uh, he always said to me, and I and I I you know 
I agree with him. He said, I slip in and out of trance states all day. Uh, and that's the thing to do is just to track, like a be like an animal track, attract your trance states. And then mm. set up a relationship. This is going to sound a bit abstract. Set up a relationship with an energy that is independent to yourself and pay attention to it. Could be a tree, could be Shiva, but the way the, the true religious function at its best creates a distance between you and the energies that are just right, running you ragged day and night. Any, any Buddhist watching this knows this, any pagan watching this knows it, any Christian was watching it. You just, as you get older, most of us need to develop some form of practice so we are not a scarecrow being moved by electrical winds 24 hours a day. For me, at the moment, the most difficult, because I'm always looking for the thing that is really alarming, the most difficult um, spiritual discipline to keep is the one you get with Yeshua called the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. Mm. Take some time. Beatitudes are the most punk rock thing I've ever read. There's no, nothing's more punk rock than the Beatitudes. It is the anti-Zeus move. It's the end of the old mythologies that are about dominance and submission. It's about radical kindness, radical care, uh, radical love. You know, so uh, that's what I'm kind of clinging with at the moment. It's hard, hard work for me because I'm a kind of Beowulf character. You know, I just run around and, you know, son of Genghis. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> an age, I'm of an age where it's, it's good for another energy to come in. Hmm. Uh, you know, I wonder too, what you say in the piece, what are the stories that will come from the mysteries of this present moment? And, uh, you know, it seems like you're chasing down uh, a number within the, the, the origin uh, root system uh, of yeah. the West. And I wonder, yeah, is there uh, a story to that you could share or, or speak to uh, that speaks to this moment? Well, here's, I, don't know, I don't know if it speaks to this moment or not, but it's just lovely. Uh, I'm very interested in what I call Christian wonder tales uh, because when I was growing up, there was a lot of emphasis in Christianity on belief. Uh, and whilst belief is, you know, uh, a healthy thing, uh, I think that Christians have often been very good at belief and not great at imagination. So I thought, well, what are the stories out there, the apocryphal stories of saints and beasties that don't require you to believe in them like you believe in a gas bill or an electricity bill, but they actually, they're telling you a deeper truth. Hmm. And so here's a story that I really like at the moment. Uh, there was a young Christian walking across the west of Ireland, carrying the body of Yeshua. And I don't know how he got there. And the name of these young Christians in Ireland, it's a beautiful name. They were called Peregrini. Now, Peregrini I like because it has a hawk in the name and it has an awfully long walk in the name as well. And the Peregrini was somehow walking along with the body of Yeshua, maybe Maybe all Peregrini are carrying the body of Yeshua. And suddenly he was surrounded by bees. And the rapture of the sound of their humming 
and their devotion and their clear joy to be in the presence of the Galilee Druid was such that he fell to the ground in a kind of ecstasy. And he, <coughs> he got up in a kind of epiphany and just wandered off. And then can you imagine a few hours later when he came to his senses, he realized he dropped the body of Yeshua. And so he looks here and there and he, he does what we all do sometimes. He's so devastated, he didn't tell anybody. And he sits in agony for a year until he finally speaks the words out. And he says, oh, I've been carrying the body of Yeshua across Ireland and I've lost it. I've lost it. And at that moment, an angelic being arrives and says, no, 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 no. The timing was perfect. You'd carried Yeshua long enough. It's time for the bees to carry it now. And in actual fact, go back to the place where you fell into your epiphany and you will find that the bees have built this beautiful beehive chapel around Yeshua. And what I want you to do is bring people to the bee chapel and by paying attention to the bees for at least a year, you'll learn more about devotional work than any bishop could tell you. So that's my little story. And so what I would recommend that in all the parishes for a year, uh, regardless actually of your spiritual inclination, make an animal your teacher. It could be a hawk, it could be a badger, it could be a fox. Uh, but what are we going to learn from them? So there's an ecological energy at play in these stories that sometimes you don't get in the the you know the murderous consequence of some elements of Christianity. I love these old stories because they they're very animistic uh, and they're full of women and men that talk across species. Thanks, Martin. You know, it strikes me there is this this call or this this um plea in a way it feels for the i mean uh, broadly speaking i don't know modernity or even the anthropocene let's say the age of humans to to kind of reorient itself outside of simply you know its own concerns and you do speak about that too a bit in that essay as well and it's something of recognition of sort of yeah locating the center of 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 orientation to outside the human realm and you know, oftentimes that's, that can be met uh, depending on, you know, where someone is with this, as, as if that's anti-human, you know, to to locate the center outside. Of, and yet there is something mm -hmm. to say that the the more and more of us there are, the lonelier we become. And that the life itself is sort of pleading or, or calling forth a kind of attention uh, that I'm struck by the, the function of rites of passage, you know, wilderness fast, these kinds of things as a way or, uh, you know, uh, dare I say, a kind of old technology of bringing that kind of encounter to, let's say, oneself on the personal level, you know, to be to be recognized as I've done myself, this sense of, wow, there's just a bigger story out there, you know, and that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, unique, but not the center of the center of the story. And, you know, uh, amazingly uh, necessarily to understand that. So I wonder where you might intersect these things, you know, again, with this recognition that the the i mean the mm. culture as a whole needs a kind of encounter uh with the wild in a way but with with the kind of mythology that gives it meaning 
rather than you know what we see on mass of course with calamity after calamity as a kind of uh human versus nature you know story which you know it seems to have sort of run its course well in, you know in brief what i would say is we desperately need more um indigenous and aboriginal perspectives because they are the custodians of mythologies that frequently do not have, uh, you know, us in the middle of the wheel, but us as an independent, interdependent uh, energy uh, with a kind of subtlety and reverence that is really lacking in a lot of the black magic of the West. Mm. The irony, of course, is that even with the success of the West, my suspicion for a long time, I wrote about this in Scatterlings, is that secretly the West has a very low sense of self-esteem. Mm. And it's interesting, uh, you know, I caution, you've probably heard me do this before, I caution the word initiation. Mm. Uh, and because I, you know, over, over 25 years, you see attempts at initiating white folks over and over again, uh, with, uh, you know, varied success rates. And so the first thing to say, of course, is that no one is initiated across the board. If, you're, if you can be initiated into becoming a blacksmith, you can become initiated into becoming, um, you know, an Aikido teacher, uh, but it's not as if you suddenly just become this fully rounded, omnipresent human being that that doesn't happen very much what we do have to work upon is the very difficult idea that human beings and this is not news to any of you i don't think but it bears repeating we are we're made slowly over time and the decisions that we make that build our character in the end are the things that actually help us hopefully grow into the shape of a human being. I remember I've been talking in that the article you were met, you mentioned, I, I looked at the end and I saw that I'd talked about four issues that I felt push us into greater health. Number one was the move from seeing to beholding. Again, you could say that the mythopoetic is a form of perception. It's a form of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were in Ireland, they would give you very short shrift if you said, are you interested in mythopoetic seeing? They'd slap you on the head. But if you called it silver branch perception, you'd sit down and have a pint of porter. Mm. Because the thing, of course, that the mythopoetic lacks is there's no image in it. There's no image. And we are image-led creatures. And so a silver branch perception works because we can see the branch. Um, I often felt uh, one of the successes of my friends, Paul Kingsnorth and Dougald Hind, that founded something called the Dark Mountain Project. The genius was the Dark Mountain bit. I could mm. see it. I could see it. It wasn't, it wasn't abstract. So seeing to beholding uh, in scientific, you know, academic senses, that's called phenomenology, seeing things actually as they are. And Gaston Bachelard, of course, the philosopher, one of my favorite ever quotes always says, the world seeks to be admired by you. Go out, become a praise maker. Just become a praise maker. Find 12 secret things to admire 
and do it every day. Secondly, much more difficult, make a covenant with honesty. Make a covenant with honesty. There's little more impressive in an elder than someone who's cut the lies out of their own life. And I've been, I've been around a few of them. Bly was a great example of that. And so if you can, try and stick with the truth of things. Sometimes things are far more black and white <laughs> than you might want. We live in such a sort of poly world at the moment. We're encouraged to sort of continually dwell within ambiguity. And that has its place in its conversation. But there are also moments that are not like that and require an absolute vajra dagger of certainty or, or feeling or opinion. You know, some point, at some point, you've got to, we've got to know what you stand for. Yeah. So make a covenant with honesty. Rilke says this, wherever I am folded, there I am a lie. Wherever I am folded, there I am a lie. Don't, don't be folded. The world doesn't need you in your folded state. The world needs you with your wingspan. Needs your wingspan. Make a covenant with honesty. Then I said, reach out to nature and history. That's the thing. Some of us are lonely. Some of us are starved of good conversation. Uh, some of us live in towns we don't want to live in and we're surrounded by people we don't want to talk to. Mm. Well, that's okay. Use your imagination. Reach out to the ancestral dead. Have a conversation with um, an artist or a poet or a musician or a record that really speaks to you and say, that is my teacher for the winter months. Um, it's the same with nature. Uh, and I, I found when I lived in London I made a, a small devotional relationship to a rowan tree. And of course, you see, because when a druid used to divine, they would look, they wouldn't look out at a massive landscape. They'd make a square of about a foot, a foot by a foot, and they'd close their vision and just look down at that square bit of oil, a bit of soil. And from that, they could divine all sorts of information. That's available to all of us, but we are so mesmerized by the screens. We're so thinned out spiritually and fundamentally. We've forgotten that old practice of just bringing ourselves down back to the dirt. And then finally, most unfashionably, my fourth point was this, earn your name. I've been saying this for years with people, try and earn your name. Imagine that it's a name to be proud of. Now, in Greek myth, there's a phrase called kleos that means imperishable glory. That's not what I'm getting at. It's mm. not what I'm getting at. I'm not talking about the clash of swords. I'm talking more really about that earlier word that I used, nostos. As the Irish say, you make an altar in your heart for the bird that has flown away. Mm. Make an altar in your heart for the bird that has flown away. And by doing that, you break some of that supply and demand relationship that we've got also, we've got so hooked up on. Uh, and stories are always about that covenant. When a fairy tale says for six years she did not speak, she did not wipe the tears from her eyes, but sewed shirts made of flowers for her brothers who had become swans, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about deep ritual covenants you make to go through the business again of becoming a fully grown human being so those are some of my thoughts mm. beautiful 
Thank you, Martin. Uh, and just uh, uh, to name that these are listed too in the recent essay on Emerge Magazine, which I've also put in the comments so people can right. see the, the in full. And um, you know, I just wanted to also uh, invite the listeners as well to maybe post some comments or, or questions, you know, Ooh. ideally succinctly that are stirring for you and all that we're covering. Uh, and uh, while you do that, Martin, I know that in your recent House of Beasts and Vines, you wrote oh, a really yeah. touching piece, I felt, yeah, which was you uh, returning, I believe, to your home, uh, to your childhood home at, at 50, uh, I understand it, and what, you know, what you remembered and what you found there and, you know, that encounter. I'd love for you to speak a little to that. Yeah, thank you, Ian. In a way, this sums it all up. Mm -hmm. On my 50th birthday, I had a, a kind of mad rush of blood to the head, and I drove the few miles to where I was was born uh, October 24th, 1971, quarter to eight in the evening, all you astrologers. And I just knocked on the door. And, you know, a big hulky guy and this little lady opens the door and I said, I'm so sorry. Uh, I lived here 50 years ago. Could I, could I just go into the back garden? And she was a bit bemused, but she said, okay. And I walked around the house and I cannot tell you the excitement as I'm walking around, because I'm about to be reunited with the Arcadia, with, with my Eden. This mm. is the place where I heard the bells of Arthur's knights as they rode by on their horses. This is the, the garden where I rescued my sister from the goblins. This is the place where I would hear singing coming from the forest over the wall. This is the place where, as C.S. Lewis says, my imagination was baptized. This is it, and I'm about to go back, and it's going to be incredible. And I turn the corner, and there is a small kind of triangle of scrub. There's a dustbin. There's no forest. There's just a couple of bushes hanging over a wall, and that's it. And it was this phenomenal moment where I realized what, what a, a, a healthy imagination can do. And it gave me a lot of love, actually. Afterwards, I had to go and sit and have a cup of tea. And I thought, he was a good kid. I sent that message back to my younger version of myself because no one looking at that bit of scrub would have thought anything could have come out of it. But again, it comes back to this phrase, not I didn't see it, I beheld it. I beheld it. Mm -hmm. And when I beheld it, coming towards me was any, in, an innumerable amount of mysteries. Um, yeah, so that, would, that, was, that was the experience. And I, had a, I, have a, I have a very interesting, long, engaged relationship with my father, who is still alive. He's only 20 years older than me. And... He took me for walks when I was younger. He showed me what it looked like when the sun came up. He would recite poems by heart. My mother would read stories to me at bed, and I'd see the moon come out. In other words, I lived in a relational universe. I lived in a connected universe where the words that we used had powers. As the Inuits say, there was a time when words were like magic. And a word, you know, carefully crafted could make something come alive. And I got that memo when I was five uh, and I've stuck with it. It was good. I said it, I think I say in the piece, everyone has a cave underneath us. And in that cave, 
there are horses, uh, you know, along the walls of the cave. But Lascaux was found by children. It was found by uh, four kids were walking along in 1940 and their dog disappeared down a hole. They went down the hole, they lit a candle and so they saw all these horses moving underground. So find your cave, find what is dwelling underneath you, because that's the ground that is essentially meant for you. Mm. Thank you, Martin. Uh, I have a question here too that I thought was uh, sort of appropriate here, which is um, from Thomas, where he says, I heard the phrase, we need to stop listening to the journalists and doctors and start listening to the poets, uh, which might've been Michael Bede, if I recall as well, but how do you get your voice heard as a poet storyteller in this world of mirrors? Well, I, I don't think it's a good idea necessarily to stop listening to doctors. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my mild caveat to that. Um, well, one thing I think that is worth mentioning in the oral tradition of storytelling is it has been very rare throughout history that people have earned a living from storytelling. Uh, you know, that French word, the raconteur, the traveling storyteller. There haven't been many of those. And what concerns me these days is folks want to franchise or make coin out of it very quick. And when you do that, you close your heart slightly to what the art form is really called calling forth in you. And so you have to stop thinking about money for a while. There's never been more platforms, I would imagine, than right now for getting your work out there. Everybody seems to have a kind of rudimentary website. And in actual fact, one of the dangers of social media is it's very easy to make yourself look like hot shit when you're not. And uh, that's something to be aware of. You remember the phrase hall of mirrors you accurately used. The way you can counterweight the, the you can counterweight the theater of social media, whether that's you know someone's perfect life on Instagram or looking like they're a medicine man or woman, um, counter that by doing a lot in real time. And every opportunity that you get for say five years to read a poem, tell a story, or do your art form in one way or another. Uh, accept it, take it, you know, take, ideally you want 10,000 hours on your instrument or art form. That's the thing to do is to more than ever do things in, in real time and ideally in your own neighborhood. Thanks, Martin. Uh, I'm going to move along here too. Uh, Chris from... New Mexico here. Martin, how do you imagine mythopoetic language can be introduced to the educational system? I'm aware this is a big question. <laughs> yes, well, good question from Chris. Uh, they are then, uh, the question or the, uh, the aspiration I always have when I work within academia, which I do sometimes, is the notion that they don't cancel each other out because as soon, one of the great things to be aware of within myth is the danger of oppositional thinking. Oppositional thinking is the enemy. Oppositional thinking is not mythological thinking. You look at a magpie, it's black, it's white. It's not. It's got a blue feather. 
Myth always offers us a kind of third perspective, a third possibility. And if you're not sensing that third possibility, mythology is not alive and well in your conversation. It's not always about, well, on the one side, we've got dry academia, and on the other side, uh, we're getting down with our freaky selves in the meadow. I would suggest this. In one hand, stay connected to your eros, to your life force, to your passion. And on the other, stay connected to what they call rigor. Stay connected to keeping your artistic and creative standards high. You know, a lot of the time, a lot of my life is marking papers, postgraduate papers. So I can, re I can see, I see this dance going on all the time. And I can see those that have abdicated beauty or they've abdicated their footnotes. And the thing that I always have to say to them is, look, a footnote is how you praise an ancestor. A footnote is how you praise your ancestor. You, you, you didn't come to most of these ideas just out of the ether. There's a tradition that stands behind it. So it's not easy because most people uh, are either firmly in the intuitive camp uh, and they are using that to define who they think they are, or they're over the other side and they've become rather dry and they use their, they use their intellect as a form of violence, which is not good. So again, I would just say in brief, in your conversations, in your work, in your creative life, look for the blue feather, not just the black and white. Mm. Thanks, Martin. Uh, here's a question I was interested to pull up here. Uh, would you say that We Don't Need Another Hero by Tina Turner for the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is the soundtrack for our time? No, I'd say it is. Uh, I don't think it's the soundtrack. I, I know, I understand why we're all so skeptical of heroism. Of course I do. Uh, but actually, whilst I think the lone hero thing could have played itself out, that would, I, I'd, I think that that is tiresome. But the notion that you, 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 you can exist without digging into personal heroism, uh, is monstrous and that that we're on a hiding to nothing i promise you uh if you've ever been in the presence of a woman being giving birth and you think that isn't a heroic act you need your head examined um no actually i think that we let ourselves off the hook far too easily these days part of myth i have to say is carrying things that make your legs totter a bit, that you are going to live a life of vocation, uh, that there's actually stuff for you to go out and do. Now, that means I can understand that sometimes that makes you an insufferable personality for a few years, but you have to set out, as Kabir the poet says, you have to believe in the great sound. So whilst I am interested, for example, a story like The Handless Maiden that involves a young woman losing her hands. But the end of the story, sorry, plot spoiler, is that she grows her hands back within, within a company of women. She doesn't grow it back on her own through, you know, tackling yet another dragon in the woods. She grows it back uh, within people, surrounded by people that love and nourish her. 
that is a very important story for me. And I think it's an important story for our times, for men and for women. Um, so the lone hero thing gets tedious and narcissistic, but heroism in the deepest sense of the word, of courage under fire, of grace under pressure, uh, you see that in the Ukraine at the moment. It's fucking phenomenal what's going on there. I mean, it's no one could have predicted this, that there'd be that kind of pushback. So heroes, maybe, maybe you know, heroes we can be skeptical about, but heroism, thankfully, is everywhere. Mm. Thank you, Martin. Uh, here's a question from uh, Camille. It says, how do you see community forming around storytellers in this very fractured uh, social structures? For example, many of us are living in communities of fear and isolation. Maybe what is the, how is the, the role or the, the, the seat for the storyteller made in a time such as this? I'm just thinking. Again, uh, although I see the advantages of, you know, Zoom and, and, and staying in touch virtually, for me, there is something intrinsic about the pure animal of your body that requires you to actually be in the same time and space as other people. And I'm sorry to hear that we have fear, fearful and isolated communities. Um, I would gather a few people probably on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night, ideally around a fire. Something just happens around a fire. Uh, and start to tell stories and just ask this very simple question, where do you find yourself in the tale? You don't need to be some highfalutin teacher. You don't need to have a PhD. You just need to know that for the next three weeks, we're going to work into uh, an old fairy tale. And I'm just trying to give as simple as an idea as I possibly can. Avoid you know, as I said, just sort of avoid websites, avoid hyperbole, you know, just go out and start telling stories and see energetically, just like the story of my dad telling the poem of Saurabh and Rushdom and the sun come up, change your cosmology by the language you use. You know, again, move from living with uncertainty to navigating mystery Ch change you know reframe the way you describe things and reality begins to change around you thank you martin uh josia says uh do you think that a story can bring us into the underworld of our past or is it more that it makes us aware of being stuck in the process in the liminal in the underworld or both It certainly can bring you back into the underworld of your past. Um, and that is not always an easy place to be. Uh, one of the things that I have done a little bit of over the years uh, is to be around people coming back from, uh, you know, tours of duty in other countries, and they've gone through deeply, deeply troubling stories that, almost for the sanity of their family, they can't repeat. And it is an important thing. It is, a, it is an absolutely alchemical act 
to say the taboo thing in a sacred environment. And that means people that you trust with experience sit round with you and we all understand we're not going for supper till the tale has been told. The tale doesn't leave the room. The story doesn't leave the room. But they start to speak the thing they cannot speak of. And that is a way in which you don't, it's one thing to have the underworld, underworld experiences filed away somewhere within you. But a friend of mine was saying today, she said, look, a traumatic response lives in the present. It vibrationally lives with you as a reality. It's not back there. And it lurches up all the time. There's a very good book by a man called John Lee. He wrote a phenomenal book, a small book called uh, Growing Yourself Back Up. And he's talking about the moments where we regress and what to do about, as you can see, the clues in the title, growing yourself back up. Because actually the underworld is a place in the end, the success of that encounter is that you bring some kind of gift from it. Um, Bly used to say in one of his old poems, um, I keep the grief pipe in my mouth so it never becomes bitter. I keep the grief pipe in my mouth so it never becomes bitter. And that's the, that's the correct action of somebody who's been to the underworld but turned it into a, turned it into a gift. Grief is often a gift, but bitterness is not. Um, so that's just a few words about that. Mm. Thanks, Martin. Uh, there's a comment here, uh, which is sort of passed along, I think, from another. But it says, given the history of white European colonialism, subjugation, appropriation, especially by men, uh, how do I, uh, from the uh, questioner, as a white man, properly approach and engage with other cultures? And perhaps meaning maybe the stories of other cultures? Huge question. You know, in my line of work, sort of the big question. Uh, what we, I think we all... <laughs> have got the memo by now that what we really need to hear is represent representatives of the culture that these stories come from telling their own stories. The weird thing is, or the terrible thing is that in many uh, indigenous and Aboriginal cultures, such has the, the fundament of destruction been weighed upon them by people with my pigment, there aren't tons of storytellers telling their stories. They're hidden away in, um, they're hidden away in, uh, you know, anthologies. What I would suggest is if do what I do and tithe your income a bit and make sure that you put a bit of money each month into, for example, um, a program where the Inuit are teaching, you know, Inuit groups up in the north of Canada and Alaska are showing their kids stories again and ritual practices. There are charities online you can donate to. That does not give you permission to tell those stories. But it's a changing moment, I think. What was encouraged 25 years ago is not encouraged now. The first person that I ever met that really told stories in a way that blew my head off was a, a Lakota Sioux medicine man called Wallace Black Elk. 
I spent a just a little bit of time with Black Elk, nothing exceptional for him, but it was for me. Now, Black Elk wanted Lakota stories told by kids like me. He wanted that that world to be expressed, but there are many, many other native folks who absolutely would not want that to happen. So in other words, you've got to go respectfully. Uh, I wouldn't tell those stories unless you've received some very positive signal from that culture or that group of people that they want you to. And the real challenge is to dig into that unglamorous scrub of garden, like the one behind the house I grew up in, and start to do your own investigative work. Students that work with me for a year, and you can come uh, and travel, and, and you can work with me at the School of Myth, my school is 20 year, almost 20 years old, where we culminate our practice is by you doing deep ancestral research and starting to tell stories, not of your mum and dad, not of you, but a couple of generations back. And by doing that, you start to build a root system that is, um, it's, it's authentic to the shape you are. Uh, and that's where I would begin. Have a look at the, the strange walk of your family over the last couple of hundred years and see what calls in you to be rediscovered and worked on by you. Thanks, Martin. Uh, are you open to a couple more questions? Yeah, before we close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So Gabriel says, uh, how does retelling, how does the retelling of a story become an initiatory experience uh, over a few days on certain common turf? To be honest, it, it kind of depends on, it depends on the ability of the storyteller. Um, you know, you, there's a, the, you know, in the pubs around here, a lot of people play blues music, but it doesn't do what it would do if Howling Wolf was in the room um, or, 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 or Muddy Waters. So that's one thing I have to say in, um, you know, really phenomenal practitioners of story what they do in a room is they move psychic energy around and the cloak over those move over that technology is called a story but it's a very 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 deep process it's absolutely shamanism if you really understand it as such but managing the expectations a bit do you remember what I said, Gabriel? There's the fire. There's the commitment that for a few days we're all going to hunker down together and eat a little bit of story over each day. Always a good idea with a story to do something in the afternoon that is related to the story but isn't more words. It could be whittling. It could be making. It could be crafting. But in other words, get it into the body. Get it. Get it not just as a, an element of the imagination, but into, into some sort of practice. So let's go back to this. You've got the fire. You've got the commitment of, say, five days with a group of people. You've got an arrangement where they're not going to be checking their phones. Maybe before supper, everybody gets 20 minutes to go out and try and find a signal. But if you do it in nature, 
if you tell the story in a place where where the wild interrupts it, where there's the core of a crow, where there's the gust of wind, that in itself starts to do the more than human work that we desperately need. Another thing, um, oh now what was my what was my thread? I'm back there, you see, I'm seeing all these times around fires. This is it, dreaming is once they're in a place where, you know, if you're telling a story, never lose, never, you know, always, always, always in the morning after breakfast say, did anybody dream? Did anybody dream? Because what you find is a kind of communal mythology is starting to form out of the dreaming of the participants. And incrementally, certain people will dream parts of the story before it happens, whether they know it or not. And so place, ideally rural, not urban. Commitment to time, get rid of bits of technology that are distracting and make sure that they are allowed to take seriously, no matter how inexperienced they are, their own emotional deepening into the tale. So just make sure that there's time within the ceremony, which is really what it becomes. You see, people think of ceremony and they think of sweat houses and, and visionary vines and all, all this kind of paraphernalia. But trust me, a story deeply told is a ceremony in words. That's what it is. It's, 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 a, it's a ritual enacted through language. So commitment to time, outside, fire, pay attention to the dreams, be respectful of the story, let the story try and tell itself through you um, rather than showboating all over the place. I'm, I'm afraid I've come a cropper like this before, as many of my contemporaries have, and that'll do a lot of the work. Thank you, Martin. Uh, another question on telling is, uh, here, how do you how do you think about the same stories myths being taught to different generations? In other words, how do you bring the same story to an adolescent, you know, versus a twenty-year-old compared to a sixty-year-old? Well, funnily enough, uh, Ian, you mentioned that I led the Great Mother Conference for ten years in America, and often that was the audience. I would have a balcony of ten-year-olds, and then you drop down to the front, and there was, uh, you know, fifty people or sixty people under the age of. Um, under the age of 30 and then much much older folks so i'm used to that actually um kids like to be scared you you don't want to be kind of spluttering profanities over them but i think that you can certainly allow the edge in you know don't remove the stinger from the tail maybe warn the parents in advance say look you know this is a, a woman's gonna get, get her hands cut off in this story consider this because the nutrition and the power of stories, and Ian, you know this, you've seen me tell stories, you've seen what can happen, wipes people out. It wipes them out because when you see a movie, all the visual action is supplied for you. But when you hear a storyteller like Jan Blake or Robin Williamson or Ben Haggerty uh, or Johnny Moses, you're dealing, your own imagination goes into profound stimulation so the only thing to be aware of i think with the younger ones 
is that um, it can be absolutely overwhelming for them uh, because they almost have, haven't worked that hard before. But a story worth its salt is going to work well between the generations. And the fascinating thing is to have a conversation at the end between those generations and say, you know, where do you find yourself in the tale? And where, where a 78-year-old electrician is can be astonishingly similar to a 17-year-old girl in the front row. And all sorts of connections get made. By the time the story's finished, it should be like an energetic spider web is moving between everybody. And suddenly you realize you are in the presence of a living myth. This is not a theory. This is not an abstraction. This is a soul-to-soul troublesome communication between um, you know a, gr a group of people and often what then happens of course is nature starts doing interesting things around you the world becomes filled with signs and wonders while those kind of stories are being told so in other words i don't change much what i do depending on the age range hmm. Well, look, one more story or one more question, I think, to end us off here. And it's a final one on story, which is, do you have any words to share about your experience now as a storyteller versus when you were at the beginning? And how does one build relationship with the story they wish to tell before sharing with others? Good question. Good question. Um, I look back with considerable dismay over my first probably two or three hundred tellings of stories because I think, um, I think, and I see this with storytellers all the time, there's a lot that needs to get played out in you before you really start showing up as your authentic self. Um, again, it's a, kind of, it's a kind of Jungian phrase, but it's a good one for a storyteller. Storytellers are in the slow business of moving from persona to presence, from persona to presence. At first, by and large, it's persona. You are, you know, um, far too nervous, really, to settle into your own nature uh, in front of a group of people watching you and certainly judging you. So that takes a time. So for a while, you tend to build up a rather uh, flamboyant, overly wordy style. But really, you're skating across ice. And you're aware of that somehow. You're aware that you're kind of getting away with it. And occasionally you'll see older storytellers who do far less high kicks than you do, but they take everybody way down. And you will think to yourself, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that. But the reality is, and I, I've said this a couple of times already, you have to go out and do all the rotten gigs you have to go to the libraries, you go to the schools, you go to the jails. You Some of these gigs are wonderful, but you never know what's going to happen. And then, and then incrementally, bit by bit, you start to show up. Again, uh, it's a phrase I've used a lot before, so forgive me. In your incompleteness is your authenticity. In your incompleteness is your authenticity. Um, you can allow it to be there the strange, idiosyncratic, 
shambling, odd, quixotic bits of your nature suddenly start to show up within the stories. Because if they don't, you give a pallid performance. And one of the things I'd say finally about good storytellers is they're in touch with the parts of them that are monsters. They've, they've made contact with deep underground chthonic beings. So when you are telling a story with a Baba Yaga in it or a Grendel in it uh, or a Dark Man of the She in it, you can bring full power. The energy, the energy doesn't drop out of the story when a villain pops up. So what I'm really getting at, remember that phrase, from persona to presence, the reality of you can't help in the end, but start to announce itself. But do the road miles. Don't rely on any form of technology to do that for you. You've just got to do the work. Wow. Thank you, Martin. I'm, uh, I, I feel that the persona to presence is just it's life advice. I mean, right there as well, uh, you know, a life well lived. Um, I want to name as well, we've had multiple uh, um, invitations to come back to Western Canada from, from oh, wow. the listeners as well, and count love me to, among them. Let's do it. Let's figure it out. I'd love to yeah. come. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I do want to now move to uh, a closing here with our time, but I also want to mention uh, uh, the Substack, of course, which is the place to be, I think, for so much. And maybe you could say a little bit about that uh, the channel for you. Yeah, I've... Substack is an online platform where for the price of an English pint, uh, you get once a fortnight, sometimes more often than that, audio from me or writing from me, literally fresh from my desk. So it's, it's the stuff that's really alive for me at the time. Often when a book comes out, there's some lag, so you've forgotten about it. But I was fascinated by what would happen if I call us a parish. You'd probably call it a community of some kind. What happens if on a Sunday morning, you know, people read what I'm doing at the time or listening to what I'm doing at the time and have a chance to respond to it? Because there's a very busy uh, response. There's lots of, you know, back and forth, and I chip in a bit as well. And so really the thing that's most kind of vibrant for me at the moment in terms of what I'm actually, what's most alive for me, Substack is the place. Uh, and whatever you do, pay that bit of money to get a paid subscription. The free subscription, you'll end up in tears because you just get like half a paragraph and then it disappears. If you want to, if you're interested in what I do, but you can't come to Britain to work with me, there's an amazing online course that was made by a filmmaker called Bobby Bailey and that's called Mystery School TV. And that's the equivalent of you spending a weekend with me where I teach, break down, uh, and explicate all kinds of stories. Um, yeah, I really stand by that. And Bobby did a, a phenomenal job with it. Uh, I still run Wilderness Rites of Passage, my team. I have a trained team now. They do a lot of the work. I kind of, I'm a kind of mythologist at large in the, in the woods. So schoolofmyth.com. And my books, most importantly, and tons and tons of audio are available at something called systemistica.com. S-I-S-T-A-M-Y-S-T-I-C-A, -I, -I, I think. Okay, that's about it. 
I think in terms of my mm. stuff. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Well, uh, I'd love to just offer a few words now, of course, reminding that this is part of uh, this event has been part of the approach to the School of Mythopoetics, uh, which is an endeavor of myself and a number of others have uh, really given ourselves the last few months to try to, yeah, to bring forth the kind of nexus, the kind of gathering place for these kinds of conversations to bring in master teachers like yourself, Martin, to come and, and uh, yeah, share some of what you've learned. And uh, just to say that website there, you can check it all out, schoolofmythopoetics.com. Uh, we're officially opening our doors uh, June 1st. And so there is sort of founding member rates uh, if you wanna come and join us before then. And, uh, you know, Martin, you are already named numerous times within the school uh, as a sort of patron saint in a way of unawares uh, of, of so much of what goes on there. And so, yeah, I'm incredibly delighted yeah, to have had you here uh, with us in this conversation. Um, yeah, and, uh, and all your work, which is getting just richer, uh, richer and deeper. And, uh, and it's just a joy to read. So thank you for that. Bless you. And uh, I can't see you, but I'm, I'm sure there's friends of mine out there and friends I'm going to make. So I hope I see you on the road sometime. Mm. Thank you, Martin. And thank all of you who've tuned in to join us uh, for here. And you can see all the other events that we've done, according, or, uh, speaking of Jan Blake, you know, and others that were named uh, at our schoolofmethopoetics.com slash events. Okay, onward we go. Thank you again, Martin. Goodbye.